Hi, and welcome to The Piece of Persistence. Today I'm with Lynn Krenicki Bayer. She's the stage manager at Washington National Opera with the Kennedy Center. And she's also the stage manager at the Opera at Bard Summerscape, where I know her. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Um, I approached Lynn initially because I've watched her for several years just be absolutely in control. <laughs> and it's amazing to me how she always seems to have a great grasp of what the director's vision is, um, of what the chorus and everyone else, the principals, the dressers, I mean, she sort of takes care of everybody. Um, and I'm not really sure how she keeps it all together, but it's been wonderful for me to watch all these years. And you're also, actually, Lynn, I don't know if I've told you this before, but you're my favorite person to dance with. <laughs> There's a Spiegel tent <laughs> at Bard where we get to play, and they do cabarets in a nightclub, and we get to dance together. And mm-hmm. Lynn, just you always have this infectious energy, and you're always super fun. And it was fun to watch you there with your husband, <laughs> too, when he came to visit. So... I've always enjoyed that. Thank you. Can you describe for me basically what's the role of a stage manager? Sure. Uh, The stage manager is uh, basically the hub of a wagon wheel. (laughs) Through us, information flows. We communicate uh, during rehearsal. Anything the director needs that comes out of rehearsal, we disseminate that information to everyone else. Um, We run rehearsals, make sure people get their breaks on time. We set up all the props and costumes and set pieces if there are any. We take care of everybody during rehearsals. Um, we also, well. <laughs> everyone, we also prep each show. So before rehearsals start, we gather all the information into one place so it's cohesive. Um, and then once we get to, we move the rehearsals on stage, we're in charge of running the stage, making sure people get on stage at the right time with their correct props and costumes. And... Um, basically making their directors and designers a dream come true um, through facilitation and communication, people wrangling and <laughs> things like that. And then when we get to the performance, we run the performances. The stage manager calls all the cues that make the production what it is. The assistant stage managers run either side of the stage, making sure people get on stage at the right time with everything they need and making sure scene shifts happen appropriately and any other uh, fires that need to be put out. We just make sure it, it happens. So there's pretty much nothing that you don't oversee or control or it's it's watch. a lot of yeah over oversight and seeing making sure all the jobs get done. That's in communication. That's a really big job. <laughs> yeah. Has it been easier for you over the years? Have you gotten to a point where um, maybe when you were first beginning it wasn't so simple for you, and now you've gotten to a more calm, collected place? Yeah, I think everybody has an evolution in their job. You start out, you don't know anything, and then as you go along, you learn and you see from what other people do, and you say, oh, I like what that person did, I'll do that. I don't like what that person did, I don't think I'll do that. And you kind of learn through every single job you do, um, and you kind of hone and polish what you decide to do. So you have a lot of mentors. Well, it's, or unwilling or unknowing <laughs> mentors. I mean, you can learn something from from the intern who just started, and this is their first opera. Nice. Or you can learn something from the maestro who's been doing this for his entire life, or the singer who's been, you know, doing this since before you were born. Um, there's all sorts of places you can learn. And you've kind of oddly been doing this 
since before you were born. You and your, yeah. your two sisters have this sort of really interesting theatrical background, and, and all three of you have mm-hmm. been stage managers. Mm-hmm. How did you first find out that you loved theater and that you wanted to do this? I knew fairly early on. We grew up going to theater. We grew up in Seattle, and we went to the children's theater. We went to all the musicals. We went to opera from when we were two. We, wow. we went to dance. Uh, we took ballet. We took piano. So theater and music and entertainment were always in our life. I mean, always. I, can't, I don't remember a time when it wasn't. When we were around eight, uh, my twin sister and I uh, were supernumeraries in, uh, in the opera. That's <laughs> when we started. So Which we were, was your first opera? Uh, Cavalier Rusticana and Pagliacci. Oh, nice. And in Pagliacci, they actually dressed us as twins, <laughs> which was adorable. In Cavalaria, we were in two different color costumes. That started our onstage you know, love of opera. Um, and we were supers all the way through high school, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then somewhere in high school, I took a theater production class because you know, I've been around theater for such a long time. Why don't we learn how to use a hammer? In your yeah, high school? Yeah. That's really nice. During that class, I realized this is fantastic. I need to do this. And you were assigned to two, I guess, jobs over the year. And the first show I was assigned to, I was they put me as a stage manager. Okay, great. Don't know what that is, but <laughs> cool. We'll do it. Wait, your first show that you were assigned to, you were a stage manager? Yeah. That's kind of impressive. Yeah. And then this, she started at the top. Yeah, of course. <laughs> And then the second show, they initially assigned me Lightboard. I'm, oh, that's fantastic. I can learn about Lightboard. And then they had to move things around, and I became the stage manager instead. Nice. <laughs> so it sort of started early. You didn't really have a choice. Not much. Um, <laughs> so after this theater production class, I'm like, look, I love this. This, is, I, this has to be a part of my life. So going into, let's see, the summer before college, um, went to the Seattle Children's Theater where we'd been patrons for many years. Um, the artistic director happened to be uh, one of the teachers at my high school. Nice. Which is handy. That is handy. Um, <laughs> and they had a couple of summer programs um, where they take groups of kids and they produce theater. And so I was hired as the stage manager slash assistant director to take 16 kids from the age six to 16, write your own show, and perform oh, no. it. So I was a stage manager, assistant director. I also had lines on the show. So do you act as well? I well, <laughs> I think every job requires a little bit of acting. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, and you're, you're very good at it. Yeah. I have to say. It, it started there. So, um, then when I started going into in college, you know, you have to decide. Oh, I'm gonna. I figured I'd start. I double major in theater and psychology. Psychology. Perfect. Is you know it's. It's a fascinating field. You get to dig inside people's heads, which has always been interesting to me. You know, why do people think the way they do? What is it that motivates them? Um, and so I, had, I started, hey, I'll do the double major. The psychology will be the real degree, and theater will be the fun degree. And then three semesters later, I dropped psychology. <laughs> Although I really don't think you've ever dropped it. No, but I, I, there was too much statistics and other things that didn't really interest me at all. The weeder classes did their job, and I dived full head into theater. Nice. And didn't really look back. So. 
Do you find that it's also difficult for you to navigate your personal life and your family and all of that in terms of finding time to spend with them? A little, but every production has a set amount of weeks, so six to seven weeks. So you know that it might be really crazy during tech week and you don't really see anyone, but that's about a week and a half long. Oh, okay. So it's not that it's all the time it's crazy. It's a few weeks here or there. Some productions require more time out of your life than others. Um, some shows you're going to be guaranteed to not see anyone. And some <laughs> shows you'll be guaranteed to actually have a social life. So nice. it, it kind of it balances out. So not you're not crazy busy all the time. And um, I, I saw that you were playing Mario Kart <laughs> and Rock Band yes. here at Bard. Yes. I, I saw you talk to some of the tech guys mm -hmm. and invited, inviting them over. Yeah. Do you spend a lot of your social time with the people that you work with while you're at it? A lot. I mean, I do work with my friends. Um, nice both here and at Washington. Um, is that partially year. your design? I think it's not by design, but by happy happenstance. <laughs> well, because you, you work best with certain people, and I would imagine that you also play well with those people. Mm -hmm. I think you spend a lot of time with people, and you become friends through that time together. And I think it's sort of happens like it's not just a 40-hour week job it could be 50 to 60 and you're spending that much time with people you're going to get to know them and you realize you want to find out who they are outside of work and friendships happen nice so I mean I'm friends with all the people I work with in DC I'm friends with the people I work with at Bard lucky us <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um, and I think it's a great way of going about your work life. I mean, my husband doesn't have the same social interaction with the people he works with. It's a completely different dynamic. And his what's his job? Uh, he's a mechanical engineer. Oh, okay. So he's really dumb then. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know. This summer, I know you've been away, mm -hmm. so you haven't really had much of a chance to see him, or has he been able to come up? I know I, I got to meet him that one time. Yeah, no, he's, he usually comes about three times a summer. Nice. So it's about every two or three weeks. I mean, this is something we've always had to deal with. Um, ever since, I mean, from college, the year after I graduated, I went off and started my career, um, which was in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Just far away from Wisconsin. Nice. And we basically made it about every three months we could see each other. He was finishing up his schooling and getting his master's, so he was really busy. I was super busy starting my career, um, so we dealt with the long distance by being very busy and concentrating on getting our lives started. Um, and that, I guess, the distance stayed for uh, several years. Um, and we got through it by knowing when we'd see each other next. And you've been together since college. Yeah. So, I mean, I would imagine at this point he's your best friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Married, oh. my, married my best friend. That's really nice. But, but I, yeah. I would imagine that that helps with the distance. It does. I mean, distance, it's not fun. It, yeah. Um, but we got, basically you get through it by knowing when you're going to see them next. Nice. As long as you say, okay, I'm going to see you on June 3rd. Great. Then you have that to look forward to. But if you do the separation and don't know when you're going to see the person next... That's really rough. 
And that, that's not good at all. You need to know when that, that next meeting is going to happen. Do you have any other tricks that you use to um, sort of feel like you see each other more often or keep, keep the keep, closeness? Keep the communication open. Make sure you, you know, call each other on a regular basis or at least text or something. I mean, we didn't have texting in the beginning. Um, but do something to reach out and have some sort of contact, whether it is an email or a phone call just saying, hey, want to hear your voice or leave a voicemail message. Um, just keeping the lines of communication open is the, basically the key to one of these long-distance relationships, which we don't really have to deal with anymore. But. Thank goodness. Yeah. You're kind of an expert at communication. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, basically, Lynn is constantly, constantly, constantly uh, communicating cues and lighting issues and directorial um, choices mm -hmm. and all schedules. these schedules, probably more than I can even imagine. You're communicating mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And I know that's one of your, your skills as a stage manager mm -hmm. that's, I would imagine, helped you in your life. Absolutely. Did you develop that on the job or did you develop that sort of in your life with your sisters or your family? I think it's, you realize the importance of it through the job, I guess. I started the job so early, it's sort of becomes, it's hard to tell the difference between where, where's the line of when you learn something. Right. Communication is huge in the job, and that helps. I mean, learning how important that is, I think, also bleeds over into real life. It, its very nature is, is what makes it important. Um, if people are not talking and not sharing their ideas or sharing their feelings, you, you set up walls. There's a wall. You can't get through that. So that that information that you have that hey I'm not feeling I'm feeling sad and unhappy that if you aren't communicating those feelings then say your partner can't help you with that. So if you're not sharing what's inside you, there's no way that they can possibly know to either help share in your joy or sadness or you have to keep those lines open. In work, if the director isn't saying, I really want a red bandana for this, then there's no way the costume designer can get a red bandana for them. And the director will be perpetually unhappy because he doesn't have a red bandana. <laughs> and that, a little I mean, that's <laughs> kind of stupid. <laughs> so the director needs to share that they really want a red bandana. The stage manager says, okay, this is important. Put it in notes. Costume designer gets the notes and says, oh, we need a red bandana. Great. And you'll have one in rehearsal in two days. And then everybody's happy because yeah. there's a red bandana. So I feel like um, basically in general what you're saying is, and I think a lot of people when they're trying to pursue happiness in their lives, a lot of it is like an external happiness. And they put mm -hmm. up this like image that they're happy and we're constantly on Facebook like, mm -hmm. oh, look how happy I right. am. It's look what I've done. And of course, we're seeing everybody else's posts mm -hmm. about how wonderful their lives are. And we see those and are like, wait, what's wrong with mine? <laughs> but, you know, like you said, a veneer. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is what makes you happy is admitting when you're not and reaching yeah. out and being more connected in that way. You have to be honest about what you're feeling and and sharing that with people. If you're having a conflict with someone, you need to go up and con confront it and say, hey, there's a problem here. Let's deal with it. Otherwise, this is going to eat at you, and we know how that feels. It's horrible. Yeah. You kind of, yeah, that's not good at all, especially if that person really matters to you.
if that person really matters and you're having an issue, you have to bring that up and that's communication. So, you know, it'll make you happier once you air out those feelings. Are there any other skills that you've learned on the job that help you in your life in general in terms of balancing your levels of happiness and success? It's probably there's negotiation. That's always good. <laughs> <laughs> you learn a lot of negotiation. Um, and, so compromise. Yeah, compromise, which we all know is good in any relationship or any life situation. Um, even if you're at some market in, in another country and you get to negotiate the price of something, that's always fun. Yeah, we always get really happy after that. I know, yeah. <laughs> people have great satisfaction with a really good, solid negotiation. I mean, dealing with people, different personalities, all of that helps with real life because you run into so many different people um, and everyone is different. So yeah. you get to learn how, this, how to react with this personality, how to deal with this personality. There's so many skills that overlap. It's, um, it's hard to describe all of them. It's funny because it sounds like a lot of your skills come from your psychology background. Or maybe your psychology background came from your skills. Mm, I think the, the love of trying to figure out what people think, that, that was just a normal or natural something I was born with, but I mean, my, my mother was a math teacher and uh, she minored in counseling. Oh, wow. So she's always been someone that people go to for help or to talk things out. And I've always been someone where people like to talk to me <laughs> about everything. And sometimes you're like, why are you telling me this? I just met you. Um, oh, really? And I can learn somebody's whole life story just by sitting at the bar. Um, wow. I, I get told so many things, which is kind of crazy, and, um, because well, people like to talk, and they need to talk, because sometimes they don't have that outlet. But I've always been someone that people tell things to, or need to vent, or get things off their chest. But so I think I'm fairly approachable as a person. I guess that's why people come up and tell me things. Um, but that's, I mean, that's... It's always been that way, and it's probably influenced from my mom and having people come and talk to her about everything. Um, I haven't talked to them about that, but I think it, I think it has happened to Jill a bit. You guys have such an interesting family life to me. It sounds like you've always gotten along with your sisters. Is that the truth, or is that...? Well, like in any family, I mean, the growing up years, we were, um, Jill and I are about five years apart from Beth. Um, <clears throat> there was a period of time when, you know, everybody hits the adolescent phase and you're constantly vying for attention and, you know, that business. Um, but as soon as Beth went away to college, we realized that in order for her to keep wanting to come back and, say, and visit during Christmas, we had to behave and not fight all the time because who wants to come home when your kid sisters are fighting and, you know, trying to get a rise out of you? That's not fun. You know, there'd be no reason for her to come back. That's a really mature discovery, though. Yeah. I think I'm still learning. <laughs> so we decided, okay, stop fighting. It's like it it's, doesn't really do anything, and it won't achieve your the goal you really want, which would be to see your sister. It's kind of funny. You yeah. discovered this when you were, what, 15? <laughs> well, it's very nice. 13, 13 or so. I think you're ahead of the game. I mean, we had to. Otherwise, we wouldn't see Beth anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like your parents fostered that kind of sense oh, of awareness that absolutely. you guys had? Oh, yeah. 
They encouraged us to always ask and question. Um, that was most important. Uh, one of my favorite phrases from my mom was, who do you take as your authority? If someone says, these are the rules, are you going to take them as your person of authority in this instance? It's an interesting thought process. I mean, people aren't often taught to question. They're told, these are the rules, obey the rules. Why? You don't ask why, do it. Well, why? <laughs> are so, you still in a place of constant questioning? Well, you always need to. I mean, everything you read on the internet, you can't believe it all. I mean, that's ridiculous. So you have to do your research and say, okay, uh, here's, uh, here's a study that came out, and this is what its findings are. Okay, well, what is the sample population? What are all the uh, determining factors behind what they've just decided in saying, this is the truth we've found? I'm like, well, that is the truth for very specific subject group that you have studied. And that's actually what I've more learned from the psychology classes. Correlations versus cause. Yeah. And so what's your population size? Who is your population? What is your population? What is it made out of? Did you study you know, just the trees in the Hudson Valley or did you look at all the trees in New York? And then your study can only be about the trees in New York or the trees in the Hudson Valley. It can't be trees nationwide. Was there anything else that your parents imparted to you in particular? Well, that was the big one. Um, yeah, that sounds well, like a big one. <laughs> confidence in yourself, success, like be successful and be happy with what you're doing. Make sure what you're doing makes you happy and be good at it. I mean, if you're going to do it, be good at it. You might as well. And, <laughs> and you, you might as well enjoy it. You have so many, um, you know, pretty much I would say any production has these major issues, especially in opera, there's, it's, it's on a grand scale. So there are all these potential issues that could happen from, you know, pieces of set falling down or holes in the stage, mm -hmm. or uh, there are all these different things that happen in every production and mm -hmm. all the different things that go into the equation are different every time. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that that's very stressful in, in a lot of ways. You say that this is something that makes you really happy. I, and I'm really curious to know how, how you navigate all of these situations and still stay happy and calm. I mean, that, that to well, me seems foreign, and I'm, I'm really impressed. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's not Disneyland every day, no. you know. And not every production is, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. Um, I mean, that would, that's kind of, I mean, that's, I guess, another veneer we could put on. <laughs> sure. You have to take each challenge as what it is and keep in mind safety first, you know, with if you have a difficult set or even a difficult personality. Um, <laughs> you just take each one as a, a separate entity and deal with it as it is. Um, you can't just pile it all on and say, oh, this is monumental. Um, you have to separate it out and find solutions for the problems at hand. So there's a hole in the, there's a, a hole in the stage, great. We'll make sure everybody's aware of the hole, we'll put some safety cones up, fantastic, moving on. The stage is raked, okay, well, we'll all we're going to have to get used to that. And the raking and is, is when it's is an angle, Yeah, an angled stage. Um, you just take each individual challenge and find solutions to make it not overwhelming. Nice. And the other half of the job is 
finding solutions to problems or difficult situations. Um, if there's uh, somebody who who's having a difficult personality or some, let's say a singer is having a really tough time, they're being stressed. Well, why are they stressed? What is it about the situation, the show, even their life? What is happening to make this person be unhappy? There's always, it's, there's always something else. It's not what you think, it's not like the, the thing that's sitting in front of you. It's usually something at home or, you know, they're missing somebody's graduation or they're having a tough time with the music because it's really hard. There's always some reason behind somebody's negative reactions or personality. And you just have to find out what that is to be able to help them through it so they can get the performance done and help everyone else like deal with it. It doesn't work all the time. Um, sometimes you can't get all the way to the end, but you can at least start to understand why this person is behaving the way they are or they're stressed and freaking out. Is it because the music's really hard or they're frustrated at a colleague or it's really because they woke up this morning and they broke their favorite bowl <sighs> and that's why they're cranky today. <laughs> so you can't take an entire show that feels like it has lots of issues and think of it as one problem. They're separate little problems that each have their own little solution and you just deal with each individual problem and it can break down pretty easily. That's really amazing. And I would imagine in your life you're able to, to, to take your problem solving and also, you know, just the breakdown of all these large issues, whatever they may be, into little pieces and deal with them in a manage, manageable way. You try. <laughs> you really try. It's not always easy. I mean, it's not as cut and dry, but I mean, solution, finding solutions and being solution-oriented is something that I'm very much in tune with, nice. even to a fault. I mean, there are times when I have to say, they really don't want a solution, just hear them out and keep your mouth shut. Right. Sometimes people don't want to know how they can fix it. They just want to vent. And sometimes I'll ask, do you want a solution? <laughs> because I can turn that part off and say, okay, don't offer a solution. Or if they want a solution, great. Here's what you do. I always love do doing those logic problem books. Nice. And problem solving books, all those crazy little workbooks. And whenever grandma would come out to visit, she'd bring the workbooks, the deck cards, and the servatis. And so we always had this idea of here are problems to be solved. Huh. And you were never afraid of them? No. I mean, it, it was fun. It was an activity we enjoyed doing. That's so, awesome. And that's all part of, I mean, problem solving is a huge part of the job too. Yeah. And it's useful in real life outside of Clearly. Work. Yeah. What are some of the things that you do now to de-stress? I know we talked about rock band <laughs> and Mario Kart. Um, I, I like to do folk dancing. Nice. Um, contra and English country. Um, it's great exercise. It puts you in a wonderful social situation with people you normally don't see. Um, and you get and to meet a lot of new people in those situations to, too, right? You do, and you don't necessarily need to form any any friendships beyond the, the eight-minute dance you get to do together. Nice. Um, it's, it's kind of lovely. It's a non-committal social environment. It's great exercise and gets you out. It's good for stress release. It's funny that um, you said non-committal. Was that important? <laughs> because curious. some people get too concerned about 
meeting somebody, becoming their Facebook friend, and then having to do lunch or something. And there's no pressure about any requirements outside of let's just dance. We don't need anything else. We're just here to dance. Nice. It's no other expectations besides the eight minutes that you are together in a dance. Oh, so there's no expectation. No expectation That's at all. That's really nice. So like you go to a social dance at a bar or something and it's all about who's hooking up with whom and that's exhausting. So there's nothing, there are no expectations. It happens, contra dancers get married, it's fantastic. But it's not a place, it's not like a meat market. Nice. It's not a place that, that is expected. So dancing is, is one of my outlets. Um, hanging out with my friends. I also needlepoint. I've picked up a little bit of, I've always done some like jewelry making and stuff. I've sort of been doing a little bit of that this summer. Nice. Um, sort of restringing and creating some new pieces. Do you work with your mom's ribbons? I know your mom oh, yeah. has a silk ribbon company. Yes, it's River Silks. Um, I do, I help her with uh, trade shows and will uh, pick up and uh, run the business when she goes out of town. Nice. Um, most of my needlepoint is done with that silk ribbon. Awesome. Um, I've expanded a little bit to some other fibers, but I'd say about 90 to 95% of what I use is silk ribbon. That's probably a perk. It is a perk. <laughs> it is a perk. Um, and it's actually kind of exciting. Two pieces that I've done over the past couple of years are being um, put into the republishing of the Needlepoint book by Joe Ippolito Christensen. Very cool. I'm not familiar with this. It, it is um, back in the 70s. She went to Library Congress and gathered all of this information about Needlepoint and fiber arts and put it all into one place. It was the first comprehensive book on Needlepoint. Wow. And needlework. Um, and so the pictures from the original book are from the 70s. So she is, has updated the book, added some new chapters, polished some of the information that's in there, and she got all new pictures of work, like contemporary pieces, pieces of people living today. And, um, and she put two of my pieces in her book. Congratulations. It's very exciting. They're about, I think, over 200 or so. That's um, really images cool. Images that are going to be in there. But um, one piece... Um, called Bella Carnival, actually won a first place ribbon at Woodlawn um, nice. in Virginia uh, a couple of years ago. So I got a blue ribbon in my division, which was very exciting. That is exciting. And the other piece is a butterfly piece. The first time I explored doing 3D um, with a canvas. Um, nice. So pictures of both of those will be in. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. So Needlepoint's another big relaxer, I guess, and I've been doing that for about I guess 11 or 12 years now since um, since my parents started the company. Pieces, depending how big it is, it'll, it could take me a couple of years to finish just because I'm doing a little bit here, a little bit there. It depends on what I decide to make time for. Wow, a couple of years. So that's also yeah. another example of, of you taking things in little pieces and mm -hmm. making a much larger picture. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think that's your superhero <laughs> skill. Probably one of them, yeah. So is there anything that you really want to accomplish in your life? Do you have like a bucket list or anything? Um, I don't really actually have a bucket list. I, I understand what they are, but I don't have a predetermined list of things that I need to do in order to, I guess, be happy or fulfilled. I create my bucket list as I do things. Um, so it's being created as I, as I live instead of 
seeing as, as a chore list of things I have to do. Nice. So it's so your yeah. life is your life in and of itself is the fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, as long as I'm happy doing what I'm doing, and say yes to a few things that I'm like, oh, that sounds weird. Let me go do that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's more creating its own fulfillment rather than being told how it should be fulfilled. Nice. What are you most proud of in your life? That's a tough question because there are many things that I am very pleased about um, and they range from finding the love of my life to being really good at what I do, I believe, I've been told. <laughs> um, it's true. Um, to not really having any regrets with what I've been doing, not wanting to change what I've done or the way I have done it. Um, feeling good about myself. I mean, that's tough for a lot of people. Um, so there's, there's not any one thing that I'm, because if I am most proud of one thing, that kind of diminishes the other things. So there are many things I'm very happy about. It sounds to me like your success in life is the success of living in the moment. Yeah, and who I surround myself with, and well, I could say what I've achieved because that sounds like you're checking something off. But I have a great group of friends in several different places. I love them all. They're part of my extended family. I love what I do, and I get paid to do it, which is exciting. Then I guess I'm proud of having the successes in all the areas that mean a lot. To you. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for me or for anyone else who's looking to balance more success and happiness in their lives? Well, it's as much as it looks like it's easy, it's not, and it's something you have to work towards. And it's not always kittens and puppies and rainbows. You have to really work at it. Um, and it's not, it, you're not going to be totally chipper every single day. Um, there'll be, they're, they're tough times. It's hard to get there. Um, but it's the outlook you decide to go with, even though it seems like somebody's happy all the time, that's the veneer that they're going to show. And they go through every single emotional roller coaster that you are. So even though it looks like all Martha Stewart, it's not. <laughs> they're, people are happy, people are angry, people are sad, people... People have all the emotions, even though they don't decide to share them with everyone. So whatever you're feeling is completely normal. And don't try to compare your life with someone else's, because yours is your own. So don't try to be something you're not. Be true to yourself. And I think in that, people will find happiness. Nice. For you, it's more about finding an acceptance, contentment about where you are. With yourself, yeah. And not rely on what other people think of your life to validate your own existence. Nice. Because you can't, you can't do that. It's not fair to yourself. And who cares what other people think? You have to be happy with you. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm really, I'm really grateful to just sit and spend some time with you mm -hmm. and talk and really enjoy. Um, you have a lot of wisdom, actually. I'm 
Thank you. I'm really you. thank you. <laughs> I'm really glad that you came and talked with us today. Absolutely. Um, thank you for watching, and please join us on the next episode of Peace of Persistence. But if we forget what really makes us sing and dance at night, it's the other people around and our dreams that lift us up from underground.